This Post Reports podcast is brought to you by Facebook. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Ben Terrace coming from The Washington Post. Hi, Jeff. Miss Winfrey, Oprah. Hi there. How are you? It's Lisa Bonas calling from The Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, June 24th. Today, Trump's new immigration restrictions, what the latest primaries tell us about November, and why racism still matters for NASCAR. Ever since President Trump signed the new executive order on Monday, which bars certain categories of foreign workers, the mood in India has been that of shock and also makes things very uncertain for hundreds of families. My name is Neha Masi, and I'm a reporter for The Washington Post in New Delhi. This order particularly affects the H-1B visa category, which is for highly skilled workers. In 2019, uh, 75% of the applications for H-1B were from Indians. So it disproportionately affects Indian nationals who are working in the U.S. or want to work there. This order, of course, applies only to those who are abroad at the moment and not those who are in the U.S. for now. But as we found out in our reporting, there are potentially hundreds of families currently in India who stand to either lose their jobs or be separated from their families for months on end without any clarity on when they could return. One of the people we spoke to is Pramod, who's a software engineer in Michigan. My name is Pramod Alagandala. I'm a resident of U.S. city called Lansing in Michigan State. I've been staying there for almost 10 years. He had come to India in February with his family to tend to his sick father. I came here to visit my family. And then in March, there was a strict lockdown due to the coronavirus pandemic, which meant the embassy shut down and his renewal application for the visa was not processed. And he's been stranded in India since then. I was supposed to return back on March 11th, but my passport was with embassy at that point of time. So I could not travel back. And everything started with the pandemic on the third week of uh, March uh, in India and um, the embassies were closed. So it's almost like four months uh, till now. And now he is not going to be able to go back because of this order, which meant that his whole life has been sort of coming apart as he described it. His kids uh, go to school there. Uh, They're stranded here. They ask him when they can go back and resume their uh, life. My daughter, she just uh, completed her kindergarten. She's missing her friends. She's missing her school. She's missing all the activities that she normally do uh, when we are in the U.S. I mean, like at this point of time, it is uncertain for us to know when we're going to get back to our normal lives. I mean, like I have been in U.S. for like past 10 years. I've been contributing too much to the U.S. economy. America was was my dream with this immigration ban kind of thing. I don't see uh, myself getting back there into my normal life. So that might uh, affect my employment and I feel so depressed and so sad uh, for not uh, not able to go back to my home at this point of time. 
a large number of families particularly in india and also other places stand to be affected deeply by uh, president trump's latest order which at least is on till december if it doesn't get extended and they they stand to lose their livelihoods as well as potentially be separated from their families I'm Nick Miroff. I cover the Department of Homeland Security and Immigration Enforcement for The Washington Post. So what is in this executive order that President Trump issued on Monday? So this is actually a presidential proclamation that expands on his previous executive order from April. And this one specifically addresses foreign workers who come to the United States on what are called non-immigrant work visas. And what he did is basically freeze or suspend four major categories of these work visas. The administration claims that it is taking these steps to protect U.S. workers at a time of, of soaring unemployment and that the, the net gain in terms of overall jobs for the U.S. economy will be more than 500,000 jobs that otherwise would have gone to temporary foreign workers that will now be available for Americans. So what are these categories of workers who are affected by this? So the big ones, uh, these four are uh, most significantly the H-1B category, which, as some of you may know, is reserved for kind of high-skilled workers and used very heavily by the technology sector, particularly big Silicon Valley companies that often bring engineers and programmers and so forth from India and other other nations to support their operations here. And in addition to that, um, also the H-2B temporary or seasonal workers. The administration made an exception in this case for those coming to work in the food supply chain. So if you think of like crab pickers or cannery workers, you know, in the, in the salmon industry in Alaska, those, those types of folks will still be allowed to come. But other seasonal workers, particularly like landscapers and forestry industry employees, they will be barred. And then they also put a freeze on the L-class visa, which are used by global companies to transfer their executives from you know, once say one headquarters in in uh, Europe, you know, to place in the United States, those are frozen. And then um, the other big one is the J category. Those are called cultural exchange visitors. Think of camp counselors, seasonal, you know, teachers, and even au pairs who come to provide childcare. And so the administration says that they will make some exceptions to these restrictions if the person's entry is determined to be in the national interest. But um, those are the, the main four categories that are going to be affected by this new proclamation. It's important to point out that all of these changes and all of these measures affect people who are currently abroad trying to come into the United States. They don't apply to people who are already here. The other significant thing to point out is that these restrictions will be in place through the end of 2020. The proclamation basically extends this freeze through the end of the year, as well as the president's previous executive order cutting back on green card applications for people seeking to immigrate to the United States. So if the White House's rationale for doing this is essentially to protect American jobs during a time that is particularly challenging for the economy, why did they hone in on these types of jobs? 
Well, these are some of the biggest and most important categories of of temporary workers, and they have long been targeted by immigration uh, hardliners who advance the argument that if foreign workers weren't taking these jobs, then the wages for these occupations would go up and that U.S. companies have been sort of too comfortable in relying on imported labor to fill these jobs, you know, that this will compel them to hire and train, you know, U.S. workers who are coping with the highest unemployment rates since the Great Depression. And is there a concern that basically the administration is using the pandemic and and using this idea of these emergency measures put in place for extraordinary circumstances as a way to initiate broader and more long-term changes to the immigration system that don't necessarily have to do completely with the pandemic? Well, we know that some of the president's top advisors, particularly Stephen Miller, his main immigration advisor, has spoken to supporters about the long-term benefits of these types of measures. And so while Trump is citing the particular public health emergency and economic crisis created by the pandemic, what we see is, is the administration doing through executive action, many of the the kinds of you know sweeping changes to the immigration system that the president has has long praised and, and promoted and said he's wanted to do. So how long they will be in place at this point is both tied to the duration of the pandemic as well as the outcome of the November election. So what has been the response from the business community here in the U.S.? The business community, by and large, reacted very negatively to these measures. We saw the Chamber of Commerce criticizing the the restrictions, as well as big companies like Google and other you know technology firms that say this will hurt the economic recovery, limit their competitiveness, and ultimately end up being a drag on the U.S. economy that you know sours the the climate on um, investment and the ability to innovate and grow in the United States. We, at the same time, saw cheers from the immigration restrictionists and border hardliners who view this as a long-awaited victory on measures they've been wanting the White House to take for years. And what that really reveals is the schism in the Republican Party between the more kind of uh, pro-business wing that traditionally has been in favor of robust levels of immigration and the kind of more nationalist populist camp that the president has obviously tapped into for his base that, you know, very much wants a country with taller walls and tighter borders. We saw, for example, Senator Lindsey Graham, a close ally of the president's, um, a warning that the restrictions on, on temporary workers will have what he called a chilling effect on our economic recovery at a time when we should be doing all we can to restore the economy. So that's an example of, uh, you know, some in the Republican Party being very skeptical of the, you know, potential impacts of these restrictions on on the broader uh, well-being of the U.S. economy. Is there an expectation that, especially since these are the last months leading up to the election, that that President Trump and the administration is going to be trying to lean into limitations on immigration or, or doing what they can do during this last window to be able to make the case that they've really changed the game for who can come into the country? 
Well, one thing we've seen over and over again is that when things go badly for the president, he reverts to immigration measures or, or closures. He seems to be very fond of, of closing things down, shutting things down. That's a, a way that he can signal strong executive action. And, you know, in this case, with unemployment being as high as it is, we have seen polls showing a kind of broad support for limitations on immigration. You know, I think that we can expect as the campaign enters a final stretch that the president will will come back to talking about immigration restrictions as well as the border wall that he's building as evidence that he's delivering on the promises he made when he ran for president in 2016. Nick Miroff covers the Department of Homeland Security and Immigration Enforcement for The Post. So looking at the totality of the primaries that we've seen so far, how much of a problem is the state of voting and elections right now? It's really a mixed bag. I'm Joe Marks. I'm a reporter with The Washington Post. I write about cybersecurity and I write the Cybersecurity 202 daily newsletter. There have been some really concerning signals about serious problems in places like Georgia and the District of Columbia, and certainly in Wisconsin. There were also in states that have done pretty well. Kentucky last night and New York and Virginia are among them. So let's talk a little bit about these primaries from last night. What were the problems that we saw and what were some of the successes we saw in terms of how these primaries went down? By and large, things went pretty well last night. Focusing in on Kentucky, everyone was very concerned about really consolidating voting sites in the two biggest counties that house uh, Louisville and Lexington. In both cases, they basically consolidated all the voting into one huge place. In one case, it was where they hold the Kentucky State Fair, and another was the University of Kentucky football stadium. And, and why did they do that? Essentially, because running an election during the pandemic, one of the biggest problems you have is there just aren't that many poll workers, people who are healthy enough and willing and able to work at polls. The people who work at polls usually tend to be elderly and so quite vulnerable to the coronavirus. You wanted to have a place that could be staffed by as few people as possible. You also want to have big open spaces where people can socially distance both while they're voting and in line. And a football stadium is really good for that. And so from what we've seen so far, that turned out to be mostly successful as a strategy for getting a lot of people through this one polling place, even though it's just the one polling place. It did. There were some lines that crept up in Lexington. They lasted about two hours toward midday. They ended up fixing that largely by bringing in more uh, electronic poll books so they could process people checking in more quickly. In a normal election, a two-hour delay would be something to be very concerned about. In this case, we certainly ought to be concerned concerned about it, but it's nothing like the four and five and six hour delays and big problems we've seen in some other states. In Louisville, there were far fewer lines, but there were some incidents toward the end of the day in which several people who said that they were in line at 6 p.m. when polls closed were nevertheless locked out. They were supposed to be let in. A court order ultimately required the doors to stay open until 6.30 p.m., which created a real rush and a lot of confusion. Well, one of the places where we have heard those horror stories of interminable waits is Georgia, which had its primary a couple weeks ago. 
Yeah, George was sort of a perfect storm of all of the things that could go wrong, not just during the pandemic, but all the things we've been talking about since 2016 as we've tried to make elections more safe and more secure. There were a lot of warning signs in Georgia, and somehow they just weren't heated and things didn't turn out well. One of the big issues there was they were fielding a whole new set of voting machines uh, called ballot marking devices. These are devices where you type in who you vote for, and then it prints out a ballot. So you can look at the paper ballot and make sure your votes are recorded correctly. It turned out that there were problems, not so much with machines themselves, but with poll workers who just didn't know how to operate them. They were too complex. They weren't well enough trained. And that turned into some real problems with delays that lasted four or five, six hours, machines that never actually operated during election day. So in this case, it's not really a coronavirus-specific problem, but it's a larger problem with how voting is done in the state that it seems was just exacerbated by the pandemic. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Georgia's had a lot of problems with long lines in the past. They've had a lot of problems with setting up voting in ways that either does or appears to disenfranchise African-Americans. It's a place where both the reality and the public perception of voting disenfranchisement is really, really strong and really concerning. There was a lot of pressure on Georgia to do this well, and they just didn't follow through on that. So at this point, considering the fact that we're coming to the end of the primary season, what are the big takeaways for election officials who are still trying to game out what the best approach is for November? Well, one big takeaway is you need to start working early on this stuff. A lot of states that uh, either didn't have laws that allowed everyone to vote by mail or that had laws that allowed that, but just people hadn't typically done it, have made real strides in making that available during the primaries. A lot of them have not yet either passed the laws or created the plans for that to happen in November, which, as we know, is four and a half months away at this point. So you've got to start working really quickly to figure out how mail-in balloting is going to work, especially because it seems highly likely there's going to be a second wave of coronavirus that's going to be making in-person voting just as difficult and just as treacherous in November as it is now. Second, you've got to be planning farther in advance for how in-person voting is going to work, even if you do have a lot more people voting by mail. In the case of Kentucky in particular, a lot of people were saying, hey, these big stadiums, they worked well for a primary. There are going to be so many more people in a highly contested general election. And all of this takes a lot of advanced preparation, both in terms of getting the places set up, set up for social distancing, finding who can work as a poll worker who isn't too vulnerable to the virus. And voting by mail, of course, you have to do a lot of printing. You have to perhaps buy new sorting technology. You have to buy these special lock boxes where people can drop off their ballots in advance. So time is running short. Money is also running short. It's still unclear if the federal government is going to commit more money to this process. That could happen sometime next month. But boy, that's a really tight time frame. And of course, the problem that election officials keep running into when it comes to especially mail-in voting is that it has become so political and it's become something that, that even President Trump just is constantly talking about as this attempt at voter fraud and really misleading people around the country about how mail-in voting works and whether or not it's a reliable voting system. I'd say especially President Trump. I mean, he's really the person who turned this into an issue and has made more inflammatory and, you know, frankly, baseless claims than anyone else. The Democrats are also trying to rig the election by sending out tens of millions of mail-in ballots using the China virus 
Trump has said repeatedly, without evidence that he believes that voting by mail will lead to widespread fraud. Will they be stolen from mailboxes as they get put in by the mailman? Will they be taken from the mailmen and the mailwomen? He's argued again without evidence that foreign nations could send in phony ballots to try to swing an election. Will they be counterfeited maybe by the millions by foreign powers who don't want to see Trump win because nobody has been tougher on trade? Everyone who looks at the issue says this really isn't remotely possible because of ballot codes that track the ballot from the voter to the polling location. Some other people have followed through on that. There are Republican officials who do have somewhat more legitimate concerns about mail-in voting. One of the large concerns from the Republican National Committee has been that, you know, as we've seen, it's really tough to change elections in a short time frame. The more changes you make, the more difficult things become. You might argue there's sort of no choice but to change things right now. By and large, though, at the state level and the election official level, at least in the primaries, there has been a lot more unanimity and a lot more consensus between Republican and Democratic election officials at the state level than you're seeing in Washington and certainly from the president. The the fact that we're seeing these pretty stark differences in the, the quality and execution of elections between states, obviously our election system has always been set up in a way where states have a lot of independence to be able to decide how they're going to do their own elections. But if we're facing a situation where some states seem to be adapting okay and some states very much seem to be not adapting okay, is there any higher body that is supposed to be stepping in here to make sure that we are actually going to have a reliable election in all 50 states in November? And clearly that's not going to be the president, but anyone else? Well, I mean, the argument from Democrats in Congress is that that's the job of the federal government. Democrats in Congress would say, yes, the Constitution says elections should be run at a state level. That doesn't mean that we expect Ohio or Nebraska or Florida to go up against Russia's GRU intelligence service. That's just not a fair (laughs) fight. The federal government has to play a role here. Democrats in Congress still who are pushing for an extra $3.6 billion to run elections in November along with several mandates that states offer mail-in voting, that they offer 15 days of early voting, make a similar argument. They say, yes, this is states' responsibilities, but this has become so big and so challenging that really the federal government has to pitch in and help. And in exchange for that, we should be guaranteed that voting will be as free and fair as possible and people will as much as possible not be forced to sacrifice their health in order to vote. That's an argument that just has not carried water with Republicans in general, certainly with the president and with Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. You know, one thing that I think is really interesting about what we've seen from a couple of these more recent primaries, especially ones that have been pushing mail-in voting, is that, you know, we're all used to this, like, system where the expectation is, is that you go to sleep on a Tuesday night and there are no results. And then you wake up on a Wednesday morning and the results are there and everybody knows immediately what happened. And it seems like that also is starting to change, that because of mail-in voting, we have to change our expectations of when we're going to find out about the results of elections. Yeah, and it's not to be clear, it's not just mail-in voting. It's mail-in voting, it's the requirement of running audits, it's a whole bunch of other things that 
are probably going to delay when we know the results of certain elections. Also, to be clear, the thing that we always learned on election night or the next morning was not the official certification of the election. It was the election being called by major media organizations, in a lot of cases, the Associated Press making that decision. But in terms of the official certification of the ballot, that's probably going to take a longer time. And we may be, in some cases, run up against deadlines to certify ballots before everything has been counted. And that could create some issues also. And thinking ahead to November, I wonder if that is an expectation that we are all going to have to change. And is there a concern that the fact that the process is just going to look different than we're used to? I don't know, that that might make people question their own confidence in elections. There's a lot of concern about that. There are really two games that everyone's been playing for these last three years. One is how secure can we make the election and how uh how efficient and how safe can we make it, especially since coronavirus hit? And then how can we ensure that the public has confidence in the results of that election and that the losers have confidence in the results of that election? And the second is in many ways a lot more difficult than the first. And that's also something that U.S. adversaries, Russia in particular, are playing into. You know, it's it's very hard to actually change votes in an election. The chances that Russia will or could successfully do that are minimal. The chance that they can bolster conflicts that we were already having and concerns that we already have about the fairness of the ballot, the fairness of everyone's access to the ballot are really strong and they're already playing into that. And so the chances that everyone feels great about the validity of what happens in November, no matter what the result is, is going to be really challenging. Joe Marks covers the politics and policy of cybersecurity. This Post Reports podcast is brought to you by Facebook. It's a challenging time for small businesses in communities across the country. Facebook's Business Resource Hub offers free tools to help you manage your business, support your customers and employees, and connect with other business owners who are facing similar challenges. From information on how to bring your business online to setting up a customer service plan, Facebook's Business Resource Hub has you covered. Learn more at facebook.com slash resource. That's facebook.com slash resource. And now, one more thing. This is an incredibly weird story. Even in a sports world in which weird stories happen all of the time. Jerry Brewer is a sports columnist for The Post. On Tuesday, we spoke with Jerry about Bubba Wallace, NASCAR's most prominent black driver, and how his team reported finding a noose in his garage prior to a race. After we aired that story, things suddenly got even more complicated. So later in the day on Tuesday, the FBI releases its investigation of what exactly happened. That They found that this was a, a, a noose that had been in the garage since October 2019. And it, it just so happened that Bubba Wallace's car was in the stall of something that was already there. They've essentially said, okay, case closed. A lot of the reaction, some of it is just relief. You know, th- thank God that there was not a hate crime 
going on in NASCAR by likely someone who had to be affiliated with NASCAR. Three times in the release of information by the FBI, they used the word noose. NASCAR, in its statement uh, expressing relief, talked about a not fashioned as a noose. First of all, I'd like to thank the U.S. Attorney's Office and the FBI. In a conference call with reporters afterwards, NASCAR President Steve Phelps said they're still going to do their own internal investigation into why the knot was tied in that manner. There is no place in our sport uh, for this type of um, racism or hatred. It's not part of who we are as a sport. It's incredibly important that we talk about noose versus rope because so many people within NASCAR, or at least within the Richard Petty motorsports team that uh, Bubba Wallace is a part of, are saying, look, we're, we live our lives basically in garages. We know about garage pools. This was not something that was normal. We would not cause this big stir over something that was not believed to be there. It's a straight up noose. I can confirm that. I actually got evidence of what was hanging in my garage over my car around my picker guys to confirm that it was a noose. During a CNN interview with Don Lemon, Bubba Wallace was appreciative. He was also defiant. What are you saying here? It, it was a noose. It was a noose that was either, whether tied in 2019 or, or whatever, it was a noose. So it wasn't directed to me, but somebody tied a noose. That's what I am saying. Mm-hmm. It was, it is a noose. The word noose is incredibly tragic and a word of torture in American history. And a lot of us look at George Floyd, his killing um, with a knee on his neck until the life had been choked out of him. And, and we call that a modern day lynching. And so I can see why people would want, if this was truly a legitimate misunderstanding, I can see how people would want to dismiss the label of noose and call it a rope. We can find no middle ground on that yet, and that's unfortunate. Jerry Brewer is a sports columnist for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Share your thoughts about the stories on this episode on Twitter. DM me at Martine Powers or tweet with the hashtag PostReports. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. This Post Reports podcast is brought to you by Facebook. We know it's a challenging time for small businesses across the country. Facebook's Business Resource Hub offers free tools to help manage your business, support your customers and employees, and connect with other